If you're ready for freedom from the grind, then passive income from real estate investing is the best way to get you there. If you don't know where to start or what to do next, then the Rent Roll Radio Show is the best place to get you there. Join us while we discuss the best practices, strategies, and mindset you'll need and give you actionable content to get you from where you are to where you want to be. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners, welcome back to the show. As always, I'm your host, Sterling Chapman. Today, we are joined by Taylor Lote, who is the founder and CEO of NT Capital. Taylor, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me on your show today. Taylor, can you give us a little rundown of your background, what you, uh, you know, what you, what you did before real estate, how you got into real estate, and what you're doing today? Sure, yeah, absolutely. So, I first started investing in general when I graduated from college well over a decade ago now, you know, time flies, but I finally had a, a big boy job and a couple of nickels to rub together. And, you know, I have a technical background. So I thought, Hey, I, how can I turn this into more money? So I don't have to work the rest of my life. First thing I came upon was uh, the intelligent investor by Benjamin Graham read that through that book. It's very dense. It's a little dated, but Basically, that teaches you value investing in the stock market. It's he was Warren Buffett's mentor, how he got started. And after doing that for a few years, you know, successfully making some money, but not making any cash flow. That's the key. Spoiler alert, not making any cash flow. I was doing the math down and looking down the road and saying, okay, this doesn't add up. This doesn't get me to where I need to be. I need to make some changes. And the first place that I went was kind of where a lot of people go who have, you know, college education kind of professional background, that kind of a thing, I actually went and said, okay, I'm going to go get an MBA. Right. Studied. <laughs> well, ultimately, is again, spoiler alert, I didn't do it, but I went way down that path. I was traveling around the country all the time for work and had a lot of time on planes to study for the GMAT and ended up getting a pretty decent score. Took that exam, started a preparing to apply for business schools. And I just so happened to pick up one of these books behind me, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, not the same copy that's behind me on display, but I was listening to real estate podcasts at the time, again, spending a lot of time in, in planes and in airports and all that. You listen to podcasts, even, even all those years ago, podcasts existed at the time. People were talking about how great this book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad is. I said, okay, I'll pick it up and read it. And he highlighted every misgiving that I had kind of in the back of my mind about spending all of this money on this MBA is going to cost me between tuition and room and board and opportunity costs and everything, 300 to $350,000, probably maybe a little bit more. And then I'm going to have this big pile of debt and need to get a job that I'm honestly, I wasn't even going to like, I don't want to be a banker. I don't want to be a consultant. I wanted to be a real estate investor. So uh, through that book, you know, Kiyosaki taught the the power of cash flow and a different way to think about money. And really set me down the path of, okay, I'm going to work on getting my money out of Wall Street and producing cash flow uh, through real estate. And that was, oh boy, I don't even remember what year that was now, maybe 2014, 2015, something like that. Good time so, to start investing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it had been a good time to be investing in in the stock market prior to that. But, you know, I, I did a my path in real estate investing, you know, Everybody always says, uh, as a real estate investor, you want to get started. The first thing to do is to get educated. Everybody talks about the virtues and the powers of education. So I said, okay, 
I'll go do that. I'll go learn about real estate investing, but I'm not going to spend all this money on all these coaching programs. I'm going to figure out, you know, the basics of these things and decide my path as a real estate investor. Started going to networking events uh, here in my area. I live in Richmond, Virginia. And, you know, again, I was listening to podcasts, learning about what's out there, learning about uh, single family investing, learning, learning about wholesaling. I knew immediately I didn't want to be a wholesaler, learning about how, <laughs> learning about how flipping works and no disrespect to the flippers out there. People are out there making a lot of money on that. Nothing wrong with it, but just not for me. I, don't, I didn't want to be a flipper. total pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah, I know you, you flip properties. And like I said, that that's a way to make money. I just, it doesn't, it didn't appeal to me. It doesn't. Sure. It doesn't uh, excite me because honestly, I was looking for something that excited me because I, I want to be able to just have fun with what I'm doing in addition to, you know, making I money. Never, I never planned on flipping houses. I was I was always like really anti flipping houses. If you listen to the first, <laughs> I mean, there's a reason the podcast is called the Rent Roll Radio Show. Like the whole thing from day one was all about rentals. I just found myself in a scenario after a few years where I had all of this deal flow where they didn't cash flow and I had all this like infrastructure and like, you know, construction guys. And it just, it just was something I could easily plug and play and produce a bunch of extra cash to put into the multifamily. But it was never like, like in theory, I'm right there with you. I wasn't, I never planned on flipping any houses. So the, I think one of the things that really stuck out to me about flipping in particular, you know, I learned a strategy and stuff, but I went and met flippers. I met people who do flips at, at local networking events and, I think you have obviously streamlined your flipping operation. You know, we talked about that when you came on my podcast, but most flippers who I met didn't do that and, and couldn't really figure that out. All they would do is wind up flipping one, maybe two properties a year, get with hit with a huge tax bill at the end. And all throughout the process, they were hustling to make that deal happen. They Maybe they bought off a wholesaler, but they're, Hey, maybe they're going and swinging a hammer. They're really turning it into another job. And that wasn't my goal. You know, there are folks again, like you who have turned it into a business. It's not particularly, even no matter how you slice, it's not a particularly tax efficient way to do real estate deals, but you can make quite a bit of money at it. And again, it didn't, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't excite me. Maybe that was a, at the time when I was getting started, maybe that was a naive uh, criteria to have in my real estate investing, wanting to be excited about it. But I, at, you know, years later, I stand behind that because what's the point of doing this business if you don't enjoy what you're doing? You might as well go do something else. I mean, there are a lot of ways to make money in the world and you know, provide value for people. If you're not enjoying it, then why do it? You know, that's yeah. kind of way I look at it, but. Uh, anyway, so I learned about, um, after, you know, we getting into the space and all that, learned about how people were buying apartment buildings who didn't have the money to buy apartment buildings on their own. They were going and raising money from, from passive investors. And immediately that was like, yes, I want to do that. And I'm not sure, you know, in, in reflecting, this is looking back quite a ways. I, I'm not sure exactly what sparked it for me. One of the things I remember uh, when I first started uh, as a busy professional, uh, again, well over a decade ago now, I was living in this uh, townhouse, a townhome complex in central Pennsylvania, driving to work early in the morning to a job that, frankly, I hated. I was, I was totally the wrong fit for that position. It was, I was miserable, beyond miserable. Uh, but I remember driving past the, the office, maybe around 730 or something, going to the, going to, uh, the office of the I was going to work, driving past the office of the townhome complex. 
and I saw parked out front a brand new Audi A8. Now I, I love Audis. I love the Audi A8, and I just thought nobody who lives in this complex drives an Audi A8. <laughs> I, I just know you'd it. be you'd be surprised. <laughs> well, maybe, <laughs> but I, it was at the office. I've had so many tenants and employees, for that matter, drive a fancier car than me. I've back when I managed my own rental properties in the early days, I would show folks see folks show up with a section eight voucher and a brand new iPhone 11 in an Audi or a BMW all the time. It was nuts. Yeah. I mean, some people are not that thrifty with their money, but in my mind, the the story that I kind of made up in my mind as I was, you know, driving to work was I bet you whoever's driving that car owns this complex or something. I mean, that's kind of the way the only, the, the, the financial math worked out in my head. And now, you know, now I have the money to drive a fancy car. I don't drive a fancy car. I, I care a lot less now, you know, other things matter a lot uh, more to me these days and uh, you know, whatever, it doesn't really matter. But I learned that people were buying apartment complexes by raising the money from passive investors and adding value and selling them in five to seven years or so. In reality, they were selling them in two years two. because the market was so hot Two if that, maybe a year. Uh, transactions are really churning. I think in the future, you know, we're going to see that slow down over the next few years. So I just decided that's the path I want to go down. And it took honestly years of working at it to even get my first, get involved with my first deal on, on the active side of things. My, my first kind of foot in the water was a pa- being a passive investor myself because I'd been working and really saving my money and, and living a, a pretty thrifty lifestyle because those early years when you're earning money are so important to the rest of your life. You have the most time you're going to have to compound your money as an investor. I thought any penny that I can save and invest it kind of wherever, as long as it's a good investment is going to be worth significantly more, you know, when in my, when I'm in my forties and fifties and I still stand behind that today, the time, the time value of investing is, is huge. So I started as a passive investor with the goal of ultimately getting on the active side of things. And, you know, that took a few years of networking, building a brand, learning about how the business worked, all that kind of a thing uh, to now, you know, we're doing deals all over the the Sunbelt and, you know, raising money and staying busy, host my podcasts, you know, all that kind of thing. And, and just, you know, really, really enjoying the, I, I, I don't like to say the grind, honestly, I think there's too much, uh, grind culture out there, but the continual looking for ways to improve and and just do better and apply these lessons and learn from people who are, you know, further along in their businesses uh, than I am and just continue to grow and, and do more and grow our investors money, you know? Awesome. So what are you, do you primarily focus on the capital raising piece or are you, or are you, materially participating in the acquisition side of the asset management, like, you know, I always say multifamily investing is a team sport. And, and so what, what, what roles do you typically like to, to play in those positions? Sure. So right now I just focus on the capital raising, but it wasn't always that way. You know, years past, you do have other roles, right? And I had the opportunity uh, during the pandemic to, shift my focus and my business to just focus on the capital raising side of things. And there are legal ways to do that. And that was critical to me was doing that in a, in a compliant manner, 
So I got, you know, securities licenses and everything to focus on just raising capital. Uh, there are folks out there who start their own funds to invest in, in other folks' deals. I think that's a valid way to do it. It just didn't uh, appeal to me. It seemed like a lot more like complexity and bookkeeping, all those kinds of things that, you know, just kind of didn't make sense to me and would also, I think, severely limit a lot of your your options to bring deals to investors. So, so what do you, what does it look like for you? Because you're, I mean, there, <clears throat> there's a lot of different folks that raise capital and just primarily raise capital and they do mm -hmm. it in a few different ways. So they, you know, like you said, some folks start funds, you know, some, some folks kind of maybe ride the line with that kind of like loose affiliation of, Oh yeah, I've got some other responsibilities type of thing, but it sounds like you're, you're one of the very few people I've met that actually went out and became a, is a broker. That's what you are. You're a broker. Uh, so seven license or so me. yeah i'm technically i'm not the broker this gets a little bit into the weeds but uh they they provide supervision and compliance and all this so that we have a broker that provides that supervision and compliance and evaluates the the sponsors and the deals and all those kinds of things uh, so i just work with the broker i'm technically a broker dealer rep is is mm -hmm. getting into the weeds a little bit but yeah i mean there are a lot of people out there who are like you said, riding the line or completely uh, over the line, if you will. And and I think most people, there are probably a few reasons most people aren't doing this particular strategy. Um, one is that it's it's not easy. I mean, it's it's tough. I mean, so you had to take I had to take securities uh, exams to get these licenses. What, what licenses do you have? Sixty three, so you're sixty three and eighty two. So you don't have a seven? No, didn't need a seven. Nice. So for me, I mean, I, I I don't say this to brag, but I'm not a bad test test taker, especially when you know it's multiple choice. All you do is sit down and study for it. Now I spent an awful lot of time studying for these exams because right. I wanted to pass them on the the, you know, the first go. But you know, that's okay. It's really the the things that are once you've passed and you're you're doing these deals. That's where the real uh, the the real squeeze, I guess, is or maybe not squeeze, but the real meat of the things that you have to do to you know comply with the rules lie. You know, things you can and can't say to investors, how we can and cannot, you know, market the deals, all those things we can and can't say publicly, how our personal finances need to be tracked, which is, you know, it's it's kind of funny seeing all this talk about how. Congress can do whatever kind of insider trading they want with, you know, no <laughs> negative issues. There's more like I I'm just a guy, right? There's more monitoring of my and and restrictions on my investments than there is on Congress who's just, you know, signing well, they, bills that can I mean, benefit they, themselves. <laughs> they, they, they make the rules. Would you? Expect? They do. Yeah, no, yeah. They, they do. It's it is what it is. I, I'm fine with the rules on me. Let's apply them the same to Congress. I'm not saying I should have less oversight. I'm saying, you know, Congress should have significantly more is, is what I'm driving <clears throat> at there. Uh, I so, get it. Yeah. So what is the um, I just want <clears throat> kind of an under, a higher level understanding of like the arrangement. So with a lot of folks, you know, what people will do is you know, I'll there's there's various levels of like you said, some are riding the line, some are over the line. I folk I have a group that I work with, you know, it's the same group every time. we we share asset management responsibilities. We do go to due diligence together. At, at the end of the day, though, when you really look at where the heavy lifting is, I focus more on, on the capital side and they focus more on the acquisition side. 
and and that's a completely legit setup, right? My, it's just my my role is more heavy handed on the capital side. Then there's other folks that'll go and they, they, they don't even know the group and they'll go, Hey, I'll raise a million dollars and you give me part of the GP. And, mm-hmm. and that's probably on the, on the wrong side of the line. And then, but you know, from a, from a, like a structure of what, what everybody's really doing is right. We're just, we're just kind of marketing ourselves as, as multifamily investors and Hey, I'll send you a deal. And, and does it look good? And then we sign everybody up and then I, I have a part of the general partnership. And then my, my compensation for the whole situation is, is, is kind of like, you know, written out in the general partnership agreement and, you know, and 80, 20 split, you know, this is how it was going to work out. So as a broker dealer, is there, is there a different setup? Is there like a, some type of fee? plan or how are you just are you compensated as if you were a general partner you just do it with protection because of your licensing or what is that whole structure how does that look different sure so uh i'm not sure exactly how into the weeds i can really get on this necessarily but at a higher level you know our, our compensation comes from the general partnerships you know basically cut of the deal the way i look at it is the general partnership when they're a sponsor, say, for example, if they're out doing a deal, they could, in principle, have uh, large uh, investor relations and marketing department, all that kind of a thing. And they could bear all of that overhead ahead of time. Right? If you've got salaried employees out there who are raising capital for your deals, until you have a deal come through, you're paying them the whole time to talk to your investors and market it. Really, for us is, you know, we only get compensated based on the amount of value that we provide to the deal as far as helping investors you know get involved with the deal and and the general partnership compensates you know us for that out of quote unquote their pocket but it's kind of i kind of see it as six of one half dozen the other they could bear all that overhead the entire time and also have their capital raise uh opportunity concentrated in the ability of their internal teams or they could work with outside sources to raise their capital and diversify their risk and all that so is it a fee-based system or is it just a percent ownership of the general partnership both so it's it's not a and I, i don't know exactly how how deep i can get on this but it gets into percentage of you know how much we bring to the deal and everything and this is where you know, it's important, I think, for investors to understand that, you know, it's with the the general partner. It's not that um, investors, you know, I don't know, gets a bit, it gets into the weeds of, of how it goes. And and this is, yeah. So is it, is it a, is, I guess my, my question, is, it's a similar arrangement that, that other folks are doing. You just have a license that makes that arrangement legitimate for you, whereas other folks or, or doing the same arrangement just without a license. Right. And, and your statement, I, I think so. I would say so. And really throughout this process, uh, on my end, it really showed me how much the syndication space as I knew it, or as I'd seen it is kind of the wild West. Whereas for us with these licenses and everything, it's, there are a lot more rules again around what what I can and can't do and can and can't say and how we can and cannot market deals to investors and all those kinds of things. They're really aimed at protecting the investors' interest in these deals. 
and making sure that, you know, we're not saying things that would potentially mislead investors. Whereas again, getting back to that wild west nature of things is, you know, if you, once you kind of know <clears throat> what to look for, as far as again, kind of potentially misleading investors, you can see it a lot more often, you know, in the more wild west area of the syndication yeah. space. If you will. I see all kind of crazy shit. I had one guy, um, and, and this isn't necessarily towards investors, but it's, I mean, it, how, how people tend to market themselves in this space. It's just, man, they go, they go crazy. One is the door thing, right? Mm -hmm. I got 10,000 doors. Like you invested passively in somebody's portfolio that had 5,000 doors. And then like, maybe, you know what I mean? Maybe you were mm -hmm. 2%. Like, so stop going around saying you have 5,000 doors when you have a $750,000 net worth. Like that's just stupid. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, and, and then on the other thing is I've seen, I've had people market themselves and say that, Oh, I raised $6 million in, in two months. And I'm like, Oh, wow. Let me, let me dig in there. Well, I mean, we only deployed a million dollars, but I got 6 million in soft commits. Well, I mean, dude, if I went around asking everybody like, Hey, would you invest in with me if I found a rock star deal? And you said, yes, like I didn't just raise money from you. You know what I mean? It's just a theoretical conversation. And, and another pet peeve of mine is the, um, I say pet peeve, the real pet peeve is the door thing, especially dude, I was, I was, um, I was asked, uh, I was trying to get on somebody's podcast and they wouldn't let me on because I didn't have enough doors, but like, I know I've got way more value in the doors I do than these people that are touting all those BS numbers you know, with their very, very small percentages of those big deals. So that, that is a pet peeve of mine. But, um, the other thing is the, the tax advantages. I think they're, I think the whole world has gotten carried away with like who can actually take advantage of these, this bonus depreciation. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is, it is so aggressively marketed by everybody to kind of lead you to believe that like, your dad who's an engineer or your cousin who's a you know what i mean all these random positions can take advantage of it and it's just it's such a narrow narrow scope of people that can actually benefit from the bonus depreciation from the cost sags and so i just i wonder how how the industry got so carried away with how they market it unless there's something that i'm not seeing and i'd love for you to shine a light on that but but i mean from the more and more and more I dig in, I'm like, man, that is like, it's such a small, small, narrow, you know, group that can, that can really benefit from that. Yeah. I think there's, I, I would agree with that. I think the cost folks out there who are marketing those, um, those services can definitely overstate the the benefits a little bit or, maybe not quite qualify their statements as much as they really should. Uh, I would agree that really most people out there who are passively investing in syndications, busy professionals, what have you, um, probably can't really benefit from a lot of that uh, accelerated depreciation uh, that is out there, at least can't benefit to the extent that, that maybe they think they can. And it make a lot of sense for, uh, folks to have, you know, have your own tax advisor or CPA who can kind of point you in the right direction. Another, another big thing that has kind of waned in the past couple of years, but when I was earlier in the space, 
I feel like I heard about a lot was a real estate professional status. People were talking about that left and right. Like it's, Hey, it's so easy to get blah, blah, blah. It has all these benefits and, and not really, it's not really easy to actually use if you're a, somebody W2 employee with a full-time well, job. It's easy to use. You can check the box. It's just not <laughs> yeah. easy to pass an audit. I, I thought, yeah. with, I mean, I fought with my CPA for years on the subject. I, I'm like, dude, I have, you know I mean? Like I, I've got 70 rental properties. I got all these apartment complexes. I'm flipping all these houses. Like, how am I not a real estate professional? And he's like, well, because you have a W2. I'm like, yeah, but I mean, I guarantee you I could like, so it's, it's, if it was hard for me to, to, you know, sell the concept of being a real estate professional. It's the idea that every, you know, plant worker that, that, you know what I mean? Invest in a couple passive opportunities is going to go, you know, pass for rep status is kind of crazy. And, and, and you shouldn't be suggesting or misleading people to believe that. No. And I think there's in general, probably a bit too much uh, of folks trying to let the tax tail wag the dog in a way like focus on first investing in good investment opportunities that match your goals and then look at you know your tax strategy and all that kind of thing but if you're just doing a deal for potential tax benefits but ultimately it's a big loser well who cares how much you saved in taxes if you lost money on your invest you actually lost money in your, on your investment not just paper losses through depreciation all that kind of a thing i mean there are a lot of great tools out there like the 1031 exchange that you know there was some talk about going after you know around the 2020 election but i think that's pretty much gone away um so you know it's a it's a big world of, of tax benefits out there another one i'll actually um while we're talking about throw use so i started investing as a passive investor years ago uh using my self-directed ira i had a few retirement accounts i built over up over the years and brokerage and everything as well. And I learned about, hey, you can self-direct your IRA and quote unquote, you know, tax-free gains. Turns out that's not actually true. I didn't know about this little thing called UBIT, Unrelated Business Income Tax, uh, which again, gets into the weeds, but there are people out that were people out there talking about how it's quote unquote, tax-free to invest in apartments with your self-directed IRA, which is flat out false. And, and for those out there who have IRA funds and you want to invest in real estate, great, you know, go for it. But research this thing called UBIT or UBTI or UDFI. There's all kinds of acronyms that are around this idea, but it's a, it's an additional tax that's involved when there's leverage in your investment. If you're basically taking out debt to buy a piece of real estate, which you are, if you're investing in an apartment syndication, a typical apartment syndication is going to have some kind of debt involved. So your IRA has to pay an additional tax that you personally wouldn't have to pay just because there's debt financing in there. And okay, well, you know, to me, that's, that's fine. You know, whatever I, I could deal with that. The issue that I really have with it is it's just a pain in the neck. I mean, I had to find a, <laughs> another CPA to handle that particular tax who knew what they were doing. I have to pay, you know, another filing fee. I can't just go to my, you know, CPA, whatever my IRA has to pay a fee and I have to go through all these hoops and I have to work through this custodian to file these things and to pay them. And my, when I went to my custodian initially and asked them for help with this, Hey, who, who should I go to? I called them, but I could tell that if I was in front of them, they'd be looking at me like I had three heads. Like they'd never heard of UBIT before, which is crazy because they're 
sure. a custodian who supposedly focuses on real estate investments with a self-directed IRA. But it took us so long to find somebody who seemed like they knew what they were doing with it, who also charged a reasonable amount of money. I still have that self-directed IRA invested passively in some real estate. As soon as that deal exits, I'm not doing a self-directed IRA anymore. I'm dissolving that thing. I'll pay whatever penalty I need to pay. I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to do with with that fund, but or with those funds, excuse me. Um, but as far as maintaining that account, uh, I'm I'm totally done with that. It's just it's not worth the headache. But other people feel differently. That's okay. Uh, to me, it's just a too big of a headache. So, what do you think about the multifamily market over the <clears throat> the next six months to a year? I mean, we're we're uh, we're in a crazy time in the economic cycle. You know, the, the Fed's talking about raising interest rates another hundred bips next week. What do you? How do you feel about the space overall? Well, I think first we can start off by talking about you know Maslow's hierarchy. People are going to need a place to live, so that's fine. Our our apartments aren't going to be innovated away or anything like that. Like if we owned a tech company or or what have you. So as long as we're in an area with strong housing demand and not a huge oversupply, which frankly frankly is a lot of areas, a lot of uh, cities these days, then I think we're in a good place there as far as occupancy goes. I think like you alluded to with the Fed raising interest rates, that's, I think, probably my biggest concern in this space is what is that going to do to valuations? And are we going to be in a higher interest rate environment three to five years from now in in a quote, what you might consider a more, quote, normalized interest rate environment like we had prior to the Great Recession, prior to all this monetary stimulus um, and and is that going to put considerable amount of upward pressure on cap rates? I mean, cap rates are, you know, tied to your valuation or really determine your valuation uh, compared, you know, using your NOI and all of that. And they're really, in my mind and estimation, they're really kind of a measure of the cost of money. At the end of the day, this is all about the cost of money. The Fed raising interest rates is increasing the cost of money on average. And for those who need to have an exit over the next, you know, year, I think that's a bit worrisome, right? If but if we can hold our properties and continue to refinance and, and produce cash flow, I think ultimately we're in good shape as far as wealth preservation and all that goes, because we have, you know, places to live that are scarce assets, but ultimately the cost of money going up should be a concern. Uh, you know, it's just um, real estate is built on debt and what the debt market looks like. The big, um, if you look at the the Great Recession, the big impact was the explosion of the debt market. That's what happened. I mean, that's re- what really blew up the single family market for a long time was just there were no lenders out there and the bond market exploded and you know all those kinds of things that everybody you know go watch the big short or read the book the book's really good so from my perspective i think this pr- upward pressure on cap rates is going to affect some folks's um projected exits particularly over maybe the next year or so beyond that i, I think it's really hard to predict what the fed might do as long as if we look at their dual mandate as long as inflation remains as high as it is and unemployment 
is as low as it is, yes. they're going to keep raising interest rates. I mean, that's just what they're supposed to do. Uh, whether <laughs> whether they stick to that is probably anybody's guess, but that's what they're supposed to do. So I think you know we can expect them to to keep continuing to raise rates until something breaks. <laughs> so what's next for you? Continuing to do deals. I mean, we do monthly webinars uh, with with passive investors on a variety of topics. Uh, most recent one was about mobile home park investing and a step-by-step guide to investing in mobile home parks from um, gal who's bought 28 mobile home parks are really incredible. And just continuing to bring those uh, those speakers that folks are interested in, in hearing from and continue to help people get educated on the real estate space. You know, the reality is that the types of deals that we do are not the right fit for everybody. And that's totally fine. I have no problem about that uh, or with that. And, and I recognize that reality. My goal is, uh, as as somebody in the involved in the thought leadership part of this space is to help people learn about how real estate investing works. It's not what you see on HGTV. It's not what you, frankly, if you go read a book about stock investing and they compare stocks to real estate, they're not actually providing you an understanding of how the real estate business works. At the high level, they might look at, oh, look at how real estate values have grown, you know, relatively slowly over the years, blah, blah, blah. They're not getting into the business of real estate investing, how we can buy undervalued assets, fix them up and sell them for more later. You can't do that with a stock. You can't add value to it unless you're, you know, some somebody like uh, Warren Buffett who has a lot of money. It's a completely different story. But for the regular people, we have no control over what the market does to our stock valuations. But buying real estate, adding value to it, that's something that we can take control of. And my goal is to just help more people learn how that's done. Yeah, I say that all the time. We don't, it's not like we're buying a mutual fund or buying a Bitcoin and just hoping the value will go up. Like we're, we identify that the value is actually higher than it's currently trading at. We buy it at a discount and we perform our business plan to execute to get it exactly to where we already know it, it it'll be worth. So it's, it's a whole different ball game because it's like you said, it's, it's a business. It's not, it's not an asset. It's not, we're just, we're not just buying assets, hoping they go up in value. Yeah. And I think that's, that's where the kind of traditional, maybe not traditional is yeah. right, but the kind of the mainstream view of real estate investing sure. is just, you know, completely wrong. Uh, one of I think it's important for, for investors in general, busy professionals who want to build wealth, well, even, even if you're sticking with the stock market, I'm not even going to say that. Get out of the day-to-day weeds of these things. One of the uh, accounts that I follow on Twitter, I am not active at all on Twitter, but I'll look at it you know, from time to time. One of the accounts that I follow is uh, Inverse Jim Cramer. Basically, they take Jim Cramer, who probably everybody has seen out there, you know, the, the big mad loud money. guy who, in mad money, who yells about the stock market. And they highlight everything that he said was wrong. You know, he said X was going to happen and the actual, the opposite of X happened. They talk about those things. And I think that is bound to happen to anybody who's so focused on the short term, especially swings of the stock market. You can't predict that stuff. Nobody can predict that stuff. But I think for those who want to build wealth in the long term, no matter what you're focused on, you get away from the, I hate to say a 24 hour you know news networks and focus on a more macro view of how you're planning your investing, planning your income and expenses, 
and just, you know, stick to a plan. And, and if you pick a proven plan, it'll work out. Yeah. I believe. So real quick, I want to hop to our radio round. Um, first, it's just three quick questions. The first one is what's your favorite book? Can't say rich dad, poor dad. We've gotten that answer 76 times. <laughs> favorite book in general. I mean, I'm, I'm a nerd. So Lord of the Rings, uh, I love Lord of the Rings. Uh, if you're, if you're talking about investing, I think another one here that's on my shelf, I got to look at which direction I'm turning the E-Myth is really one of the great books that helped change the way that I think about my real estate investing and, yeah. and basically is hiring that, people. Is, is that the original E-Myth? I, I read the E-Myth Revisited where Michael Gerber teams up with Than Merrill. Yeah, I've read that one twice. Mine is a uh, revisited in general. Yeah. I've, I've listened to part of the real estate, um, the real estate investor audiobook. I think they, they have a thousand like iterations of sure. the e-myth for blank. I didn't like that quite as much as just the e-myth revisited. Um, I like the slightly more general nature of this book because I don't know. I just, I, I guess I just prefer the way this uh, story was taught. What's your favorite quote? You looking around the room to see if no, I'm not. I don't have any. I don't have any quotes <laughs> in my room. I, I guess I'm. Uh, I always tell people ahead of time, but I forgot to tell you. So I'm sorry. And that's. I know. I wish I would have. Uh, hmm. Can I can I mull that one over for a minute? Can you give me the next one? Yeah. So what's uh what's your favorite thing to do outside of work? I am super passionate about Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. You can see over here. I have the book Jiu Jitsu University on my shelf. Yes. Uh, I got. Uh, been training since 2015, got promoted to purple belt in July, recovering right now from a couple of, uh, broken ribs. So I'm, I'm back on the mats, but, uh, I love jujitsu. I've got all my fingers, especially my thumbs are really screwed up. Uh, but no, I love, I love jujitsu. Awesome. Um, how can our listeners find out more about you, learn from you, invest with you? So my podcast, the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, available where you're listening to us right now. Uh, my company is NT Capital. If you'd like to learn about uh, potentially investing with us in the future, go to investwithtaylor.com and fill out the form and uh, schedule a call. Awesome. Well, Taylor, I really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for coming on the show and and thanks for uh, for having me on yours the other day. Yeah, it's great uh, connecting with you again. And uh, thanks, everybody out there for tuning in. This episode was brought to you by Crestworth Capital. If you're a busy professional and ready to make passive income from real estate investing, then go to CrestworthCapital.com where you'll be able to download a free copy of our ebook to help you get started today. Until next week, happy investing. <laughs>